Hey everyone, welcome to the 42nd episode of the Urban Astronomer podcast, the second episode of 2019 and the last episode of our first current season. This episode should have been released almost a month, well, almost two months ago, but after my father's sudden death, I decided to rather spend the time with my mother and brothers, remembering him, mourning and healing. Now, there's still a long way to go before we're all back to normal, but I have decided that I would like to get back into the saddle and resume podcasting. So, here we go. Okay, first up, before anything else, I would like to thank you all for your patience. Those of you who haven't unsubscribed in frustration, but I'd especially like to thank the Patreon supporters, uh, Catherine, Margot, Peter, and new patron, Frank, who pledged his support a few months ago. Thank you, Frank, and I am so sorry to keep you waiting. Second, I got a very surprising message posted as a comment on a recent episode from Simon Kidd. Simon says, Hello, Alan. Thanks for doing your podcasts. I am enjoying them immensely after returning to astronomy after more than 40 years. The information and equipment available to amateurs today is just amazing compared to my wobbly first telescope back then. I've been listening to the back issues and look forward to the next one. I'm sorry to hear you've had a tragedy and hope things get sorted for you soon. Best wishes, Simon, based in UK. Well, thanks for reaching out, Simon. It's always nice to hear that somebody likes what I'm doing. I've got some good news for you about the podcast. I will be launching a second season soon, and although I am making changes to how I organise things, the actual show itself won't be significantly different. So thanks again for your kind words, and I hope you enjoy what's coming. Now... As regular listeners will know, I have an arrangement with the organizing committee of SCOPEX, which is South Africa's largest and most important astronomy event, running for over 10 years now. Aside from all their other regular events and attractions, every year they have a series of speakers presenting lectures on various topics related to whatever that year's theme is. In exchange for recording these talks and posting videos on the SCOPEX website, I get to promote this podcast there and play back the recordings of those talks as episodes here. And for the past few episodes, that's what I've been doing. However, I got a note on the Urban Astronomer Facebook page from a listener telling me that he doesn't like them, that they're boring, and that it is hard to follow without the ability to see the visuals and slides that the speakers are referring to. Now, I understand what he's saying, and I do get his point, but I also have to wonder just how many of you agree with him. You see, he was literally the first feedback that I'd had from a listener about the actual content of the show in many months. So I would like to ask two things. First, if you listen to the show and you don't like it, to the point where you've decided not to listen again, please would you take the time to send me a note and just let me know why? As much as I hate negative feedback, I mean, who doesn't, right? It's still very important that I know if I'm doing something wrong, so please let me have it. Although, if you are angry enough to want to do this anyway without my prompting, can I please ask that you take a few hours just to calm down first? My feelings are delicate and easily bruised. On the other hand, if you do like the show, then definitely please let me know, because it's not enough for me to know what I'm doing wrong, I also need to know what I'm doing right. Every now and then, I think about mixing up the formats a bit and trying something new and abandoning old segments, and the problem is that right now... I only have my own whims and moods to go on. I've got no idea if I'm cutting something that you would rather I keep. So speak up, make your voice heard, and let me know what you want. The second thing I want to ask is for your patience. I have one more of these lectures to play back, and it's a long one, by Robert Ormerod. Robert is a documentary photographer from Scotland who recently published an article in National Geographic magazine about amateur astronomers and and telescope makers. Some of the images he used were captured by him at Stellafane, the uh, world-famous American telescope-making event in Springfield, Vermont, and he took others while at Scopex before and after he presented the talk that I'll be playing for you in a second. The main thrust of his story is an expedition that he took to Iceland to photograph the Northern Lights. Um, Anyway, this is the last of the lecture recordings, and then we're free to go back to our usual format. So, here he is, Robert Ulmerod, presenting the keynote lecture at Scopex 2018. 
I'm an editorial and documentary photographer based in Scotland. So what this means is I shoot commissions for magazines and newspapers, but I also work on my own projects, long-term projects, usually one to two years kind of thing, um, maybe a few smaller ones as well. And I also pitch these to um, magazines, pitch little parts of them to get commissioned to go places like uh, South Africa or you know wherever like Stellafane that was a um, I pitched that story um, to Time and then they commissioned it so that's the kind of thing that I've been doing and um, so I was invited here today to tell you about a project um, I've been working on about outer space um, so th this kind of project came out of the idea that almost every child or you know has this dream of becoming an astronaut or going to space at some point, you know, flying a spaceship or visiting other worlds. Um, but this kind of idea of space travel, I mean, actually doing it is only accessible to a tiny percentage of people, you know, um, really small. I, I need to look up the percentage because uh, I keep on saying that tagline, but it's, you know, zero, 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 zero point two percent, something like ridiculous like that. So um, th this project looks at the people who can't, who aren't, can't get to space, but they still have this dream. So how are they um, enacting this dream? What are they doing? A bit like the folks here, you know, coming to this festival, you know, amateur astronomy is one thing. Um, you know, amateur rocketry is another. All these people interested in space in some way, and they're kind of living their dream by you know, doing something they love, um, which is really what the project has be become about. You know, the, the kind of, how do we relate to space? Um, so I've photographed amateur rocketry festivals, space camp, uh, space camp for the blind, believe it or not, uh, kind of exists, UFO hunters, um, Aurora hunters, which I'm gonna show you some of that today, um, SETI enthusiasts, uh, Meteor hunters, Mars simulations, you know, I've been doing lots of kind of crazy stuff and I'm going to show you a little kind of slice of it today. Um, eventually I hope to publish a book from this project, uh, which I'm hoping will ultimately explore our kind of curiosity for other world, for outer space, for our desire to explore beyond kind of the earth. Um, so yeah. How did I get into it, though, first of all? Um, so I first became interested in space, like a lot of people. Uh, when I was a child, I loved sci-fi, and the concept of like the vast expanse of space kind of blew my little mind. Um, but I really had problems understanding physics, and sci-fi certainly wasn't uh, what all the cool, cool people were watching at the time, so I gradually kind of lost interest and followed a different path, which kind of took me to journalism. And so fast forward kind of two decades, and I'm now a photographer working on projects, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I've just completed maybe my second long-term body of work. And I'm at this kind of difficult stage when you're like, what, what are you going to do next? What, what's next to make work? How am I going to push myself further? Um, and so I came across this this little story about amateur rocketry. And it, it just really, I, I loved shooting it. I really loved meeting the people. And it kind of got me back into space. You know, it took me back to my childhood kind of dreams. And um, that's when I was like, I've got to do a big project on this, but how am I going to do it? How am I going to travel all over the world? You know, I just thought it was kind of out of, out of my reach. So. I shot this story um, on amateur rocketry. It's called International Rocket Week, which is a great PR because it's this tiny uh, little, you know, maybe 100 people max attend. And there are some people from all over the world um, that go, but, you know, the term International Rocket Week kind of makes it sound like it's like, you know, the, inter the, the number one thing to attend. So good PR. Um, so this is the first shot, it's a launch to tell you about. Uh, I don't know, does anyone here know much of our amateur rocketry? I know there was a stall um, earlier today, but the idea is that you obviously spend 
you know, months, years building a rocket, and then you take it somewhere, and then you successfully launch it. So this is a successful launch. Straight up, a parachute opens, and the rocket returns to Earth. That's the successful scenario. Um, obviously, you have to find it once it's returned to Earth, which is uh, can be a problem sometimes, especially when you're using, it depends what kind of system you're using to, to locate the rocket. And a lot of these guys are using a really basic GPS kind of system you'll see in a bit. So yeah, here, here we go. Here's a little uh, perfect kind of explanation of what amateur rocketry does. And this is the very most basic first step of um, you know, building. So obviously quite a small rocket in comparison to that first one. And this guy is the organizer of the whole festival. He's such a, you know, he's really one of the most um, inspirational factors about the whole thing that kind of made me love the story so much. You know, he's been doing this for decades and it's his, you know, his love, his focus, you know, probably the highlight of his year. And it, just a, you know, great guy, big space enthusiast, as you can see from the Apollo 11, great jumper. And he kind of has this look, he like aviation goatee kind of thing. So, and on, on the other side is a little detail of these um, kind of little rockets. And then here you get some little details as well. Um, so this is a lot higher. A big part of the way I shoot is trying to get every little aspect of the story. So I'm thinking, what makes up, you know, amateur rocketry? You've got well, explosives of some form. I mean, that that's a general term, but it's kind of basically um, gunpowder that they're using uh, inside motors, and then the parachute, which is being tested here, which obviously has to deploy to return the rocket to Earth. And here we go. Here's another couple of characters. Um, this guy, I had to photograph him as soon as I saw him. You know, he, he reminded me of kind of a, a villain from James Bond or something. Uh, and he was very, very obsessed with, you know, the way things were. Every single one of his little rockets had to be in the perfect. I could have probably shot this in, you know, 30 to 40 minutes, but I spent like two or three hours with him moving his rockets around, blah, blah, blah. And you can see there's a whiskey bottle, a Star Wars uh, craft, blah, 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 a couple of different small rockets. And here's a launch. Um, so it's kind of successful, a bit of a, you know, you can always tell when they're successful or not by how straight the contrail is. You know, that's the idea, straight up and down. And then everyone looking up and the kind of on-off switch, <laughs> the, the launch button down here. So and some of them would have little mascots that they would send up like this. And oh, jumped ahead here. So this is a this was the first story, and as I said, it kind of, you know, really got me into the whole space thing. So I wanted to kind of give you a bit, bit of background on that. Um, so yeah, what what's next after this? This little story, where where to go from here? So I I wondered about. And this is where kind of the Northern Lights came in. How, how do other people kind of relate to space? And there's the, um, you know, my, also with this new obsession that kind of uh, got, how would you say, ignited in this, with this festival, but, you know, came a kind of great desire to see the Northern Lights myself as well. You know, it seems like a once in a lifetime thing to do. And so I had a, a free few weeks um, and I thought, right, this is it. I'm going to try and go to Iceland. It was March, which is the perfect time um, to go and see the Northern Lights. March, September, um, when it's getting dark. It, well, what's, how is it? it's confused me. Now South Africa is the opposite way around. But yeah, it's getting darker in March, or it's been dark. No, it's coming out of full darkness in March in Iceland. That's correct. It's too many uh, confusing parts of the world. So anyway, so what are the Northern Lights? So I had a great 
a chat with Peter, who did a talk earlier. I'm just trying to see if he's here. He's probably gone back as it's fed up. So here's a nice diagram which I nicked off the internet um, that shows how the Northern Lights come about. So here we have the solar wind, which is basically radiation, charged particles. Um, it hits what the atoms in our atmosphere. Stop me if I'm getting this wrong. I'm a bit of a layman. Um, so I don't know why I'm explaining it to you, but I thought it would be good to go into a bit of background. And it excites um, the elements within the atoms. No. The molecule, molecules, and as, as they decay, after they've you know been excited by this radiation, so they're moving like this, as they decay, that's what produces um, the photons, the light, that causes, the, that is the aurora, basically. So it, and it comes around like this because of our um, the electromagnetic field, which you know protects the planet. So basically, the aurora is an after, you know, um, how would you say, an effect from the, our big shield. You know, it's just showing what, what it's doing for us. And it shows it in a very beautiful way, um, which we're about to see. Um, so, yeah, I've got, mm. so basically, in recent years, Iceland has become uh, one of the biggest meccas um, to see the Northern Lights. You know, it, it's just everyone, well, in Europe seems to want to go there to see the Northern Lights, and it's you know the, one of the places to see it. And so I wanted to photograph that as part of my project as well. You know, people all over the world—it's a bit of a phenomenon—want to come and see it there. And so I, you know, I wanted to go meet some of these people, and also meet some of the aurora hunters. You know, full that are looking for the aurora every every night. So here we go, and as you can see. Um, Iceland is a very beautiful place as well, you know, absolutely stunning, extreme land, volcanic landscape. So I went for seven days and I road tripped around, there's a ring road all the way around the island and about seven days is maybe a bit short to do it but I did it pretty fast, uh, not stopping off too much, didn't see that much touristy stuff, but I would absolutely recommend it. So I did this in a camper van, so sleeping in the back. It's the cheapest way. It's a very expensive country, as you'll find out if you go, you know, hotels, food, everything. So here's some landscapes to give you a kind of feel of what Iceland really is uh, like, you know. The, the mountains are incredible. And there's a lot of these crazy uh, waterfalls kicking about as well. Uh, another reason I wanted to go is the kind of similarity between um, Iceland and what we would perceive you know, another planet to be. It's very otherworldly. And many films have been um, shot there, you know, talking like Interstellar. It, it, it doubles as you know, another planet in a lot of films. Um, so I wanted to kind of photograph this phenomenon as well. And a little unknown fact is that during the Apollo missions, they went to Iceland to train um, to you know, pretend they were on, um, on the moon. I was going to say Mars. That's not correct at all. Um, so, and also do a bit of geology and things, kind of just doing the stuff that they were going to do on the moon, but in Iceland. So, very interesting. And they also have these amazing kind of they're basically a totally renewable society, so they work with the energy from, you know, uh, geothermic energy, steam, etc. Blah blah blah. So here you see, you know, it's looking, it's very otherworldly. And so, um, so eventually, after the seven days, uh, I met, well. Long story short, I met a guy who was running a museum about the Apollo missions, um, and he was inviting astronauts to come over and see the place where they actually trained. And he'd had, I think now he's had six of the original Apollo astronauts over um, visiting him. And so he was a great um, person to introduce, you know, 
contacts. And he knew these two brothers who were obsessed by the Aurora. You know, they, they lived there. Um, so one's an engineer, one's a project manager at a ge geothermic plant. So they do this during their day job. But at nighttime, they head out every time they see the Aurora. So in Iceland, it's different in the UK. Sometimes we see it in Scotland. I've never seen it. But you know, you'd have to go out and actively find a dark place. But in Iceland, these guys sit in their living room, look out the window, and see the northern lights on the on the horizon. You know, so they head out. They're like, "Oh, great!" Head up. One of them is obsessed with uh, photography, and the other likes to do time lapse, some other kind of photography. So they both go out, and I, I've seen them since I visited. They're still doing it every night. I don't know how they have the energy, you know, to work these jobs, and then they're out really late at night seeing the lights. But they were also kind of a typical, you know, Scandinavians, very deadpan, very fr like, would you say friendly? I wouldn't say warm, but you know, they are friendly inside. <laughs> you know, once you get past this kind of, uh, you feel like, oh, they don't seem to have much sense of humor. The, you know, expressions in this photograph kind of show the. You know, so I was kind of making jokes and stuff, and you were just looking, there'd be no response at all, you know. And so very, I don't know if anyone's watched any of the kind of Scandinavian, Scandinor films, TV programs. You know, it seems to be a typical stereotype, and possibly true. Although, don't, don't take it from me, go and discover yourself. So these guys promised they would take me out you know, by this point, I'd been going, I'd been traveling around Iceland for, um, this was my fifth day meeting these guys. And despite the previous photographs, you know, the weather had been absolutely horrendous. You know, I was thinking at this point, there's no way I'm going to see the Northern Lights. Um, I'd given up, basically. The weather was still bad that day when I met them. It's overcast, rainy. Um, so I'd kind of given up on it. And these guys were like, okay, we'll take you out tonight if they appear. And the weather was bad, as I said. Um, and so I was going to bed. And just as, um, I think, I don't think I was quite in my pajamas just yet, but I was, I'd already called off the day. I was thinking about going home. You know, I had two more days in Iceland uh, before I was heading home. Uh, obviously, I was disappointed not seeing the Northern Lights, but, um, you know, I was ready to stop sleeping in a van. One. Um, so I was ready to go to bed and suddenly knock 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 on the door there's these two guys fully dressed in outdoor gear you know the northern lights are out we've seen them you need to come out and I, I was kind of like you know 75% yes let's do it 25% I want my bed so uh, anyway I'm glad that I did so we walked out the door and they have this massive truck um, huge in Iceland the landscape is so extreme the wheels are like the size of a person you know they're, they're kind of like monster trucks and off we go in this monster truck down out of town as soon as we got out of town I saw the northern lights on the horizon you know it's a really special moment and really beautiful and I was kind of really enthusiastic like wow this is amazing and these guys were just this is like the least amount of northern lights <laughs> they'd ever seen. You know, it was like, you know, really down low in the scale. I think it's like one to nine, the scale of how, um, you know, the space weather goes. And so this was really low down. And here we are. This is them in their car. But the, the northern lights were still, uh, you know, good enough to kind of get in the background of this portrait but I kind of struggled a wee bit you know I had to like put a pretty long exposure and also you can see it's a bit noisy so the, um, the ISO was quite high so this is us kind of I think it might be yeah just when we're arriving and so after this shot they were really impatient off they went out the car not much chance to wait for me. You know, I was now just a byproduct, like this guy that was tagging along. And I was like, where the hell are these guys going? Down this kind of cliff, pretty steep cliff down towards the water, big boulders. They were like running all over. I was like, you know, tripod, camera, you know, thinking am I gonna survive tonight? Uh, 
And so down we went down, and they took me to this place, amazing um, formation, big archway coming out of the sea. And the Northern Lights were just playing just behind this archway. So this is the truck again. I remember it being a bit bigger than that. But here's this archway. Uh, as I said, I described. And you can kind of see, I mean, they were, I think it might have increased by this point. So it was maybe, but still not that strong. So I was obviously struggling a bit more as well to light the, I had to light the beach a bit with my head torch. So I kind of sprayed it around the bottom here to create this. And I was getting a little bit of uh, light from them as well. They were lighting, I think he had a head torch on and lighting the archway. So yeah, you can see here the, the various colors that involve. <clears throat> so we've got green, red, and a little bit of purple, and some nice stars behind. And then I was also kind of shooting, I wouldn't call it astrophotography. I'm not an astrophotographer, you know. Um, now a few times I've attached my camera to a telescope and it's always been with a supervision of an actual person who knows what they're doing. <laughs> Chris being uh, one of them who kindly let me have access to his telescope last night, shoot the moon. So this was just on a tripod. Um, I don't know what your term for that photography would be. Someone, someone said something last night, just starscapes or, yeah. So, but it was still working kind of well. You know, I think this was shot on, a, on an 80, which is a nice, um, I don't know how many people are into photography here, but I'm gonna go into some technical stuff. So maybe bore half of you, interest the other half, I'm not sure. So 80, I'm on an 85 lens, which is a lot, actually I've got one right here. Um, nice and small, lighter than a big long, you know, this, this is my 70 to 200, which I'd like to try and shoot the sky with but but it's very heavy quite heavy so it always pulls the tripod down you know there's a lot of vibration the heavier the lens you use so I was using this 80 which is a bit lighter a lot lighter than that anyway and this is the lens I use to shoot this camera on a tripod so yeah I think it, it's quite lucky. I mean, in comparison to the, the lights at home, you see, you never see the stars really at the same time. You see one or two, but the night sky there is also extremely clear, amazing. So you can actually see a lot of stars through the northern lights. And so, anyway, so this is the first night. So, uh, the, like I said, the guys were not very excited about this. They, um, but I was, but we went back, took me home, back to the hotel. Um, I was staying in a hotel this time, not, you know, I'd been five days in a van and got off at this hotel anyway. And uh, so I was ready to go to bed. I had one more night in the town and I was thinking again, the rain was terrible. I was like, there's no chance for seeing them again tonight. So again, second night in a row, I'm heading to bed <laughs> and uh, these guys, I don't think they really used phones that much. They would never like text ahead or anything. So this time I was definitely in my pajamas, um, heading to bed. And then again, these two guys appear in full outdoor gear, you know, boots, uh, rain jackets, blah, 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 the whole lot. And so this time I was definitely like 85%, I want to go to my bed. 25% <laughs> maybe I should go out um, and see these northern lights because I'd already seen them but then you know a big part of me was like oh when am I going to see them again you know I really have to I've come all this way it would be ridiculous if I didn't go out now so I really had to pull myself together and throw on all my outdoor stuff in the fastest way possible so you know I think I walked out the door with my laces trailing and everything so off we went this time and and these guys were great they knew all the local locations you know, if you go and see them, I definitely recommend. There's big tours that go out and they take, you know, 30 to 40 people out to a place, a location in, in town. But this was really special. These guys knew, you know, this was way out of the touristy part of Iceland. And these guys knew all their local spots, best to see, with great kind of features. 
to photograph within them. So they took me out to the, this geothermic plant, um, which I think one of them worked at in the day. And this is where some of these images came from. This one's actually displayed outside and it looks better than it does right now. So this time the Northern Lights were like pff, insane. You know, the other night it was like, what, max four? This time, at this point, they were getting up to like six, you know. And it's so bright that I could shoot, you know, it's not on as high an ISO, it's not as noisy. The sky is bright, shooting the reflection. You know, it's a much brighter photograph, much more detailed than the others, which I was really kind of struggling with. And I, I even managed to shoot like proper portraits of them under the Northern Lights, you know. So as we were out of this geothermic um, place, they, the, the lights just start to kind of get better and better. It was unbelievable. And even these two Scandinavian guys, you know, started to show a bit of enthusiasm, like wire. They were saying that it was probably one of the best that they'd seen that year so far, and maybe definitely on their top 10 list. And as it got better, you know, just got so many different shapes coming down, like these ribbons that are almost like horizontal, horizontal, vertical. And you've got the other ones that are, um, that are horizontal. So across the sky or upwards. And here you've got the colors again, the purple, the green coming through. And then, so it's also showing kind of a story um, you know, about the Northern Lights, about these guys. So I was trying to do some more creative stuff with some of the geothermic plant. This is like um, steam escaping from volcanic activity. And then you've got, you can't really see it here, but there's uh, a good bit of Northern Lights kind of all mixing in with the steam. So as the night went on, this, this was lasting for hours this time. We were right there for ages. And it was just getting better and better. At this point, the guy said it was about eight. And this is the, it only was on this, this intense for, I don't know, one to two minutes. And I should have really been on my wide angle, but I was on my 85. And this was the only shot that I managed to kind of get of really what it was like. It was nothing like I'd seen in previous photographs. Um, it was all shapes. It kind of seemed like spider legs in the sky all coming down. It reminded me of, you know, like an alien invasion from uh, some sci-fi film. Or maybe after, I don't know if anyone's seen the series Stranger Things and there's that like big spider thing in the sky. It kind of reminded me of that. You can see a bit of it here. You know, it's kind of like, almost be scary if you didn't know what it was. So that's why I wanted to show you that one. I mean, it's not technically the best photograph, but you know, you get this idea that it's almost kind of descending on you. And here's some more of the geothermic. So, like I said, just lasting hours and hours. This is a really special night. You know, I, it lasted so long that I, I put the camera down, and I always try and do this when something's this amazing, and just laid down in the grass and just looked up you know all I was missing was a beer or a couple of beers would have been nice to sit back and watch it I think if I photographed it again as well I might just not not bother because <laughs> this night was that good I'd really like to just experience it you know without uh, without the distraction of a camera you know it's quite stressful as well you're like oh I've got to make the best picture how am I going to do that I don't have much much time to do it with so, and here we go, this is how bright it was, you know, so I was, uh, you can see the lights up behind him, that kind of spidery effect again. Um, so, so bright that I could shoot a portrait of this guy. I think I used the screen to light his face, which is pretty crazy. And I focused, you know, using the live view zoom in, more technical geek stuff, you know, using the live view to zoom right in in the same way you would do a star I was zooming right in on his screen, on his camera, because that was the brightest thing there. And here you can see, 
you know, one of the most successful in terms of star activity in the background, you know, and there's, there's a lot, you can see a lot of stars and a, a, quite a lot of Northern Lights in this shot. So I was mixing between, you know, shooting the guys, shooting the sky, really trying to bring out, you know, really get across what it was really like. And here we go, this is one of the last shots that I made. Uh, so I was gradually started moving towards this weird house. They have these crazy kind of triangular houses there. I think they're from like 60s or 70s or something. I don't think it, I don't know if anyone lives in them or what the deal is. Um, if someone lived in this one, they'd probably have a good fright because I was shooting it for a while without <clears throat> any kind of additional light and it was kind of just blending into the background. I've got some other shots that uh, you can see that in. And I was like, it's not really working. I really want to make it like stand out, really pop. So one of the guys, one of the Aurora hunters, went down with a head torch. You can't quite see him in this, but he's over here on the left. And he lit the house perfectly with his head torch. And I just balanced it just right with the sky, the exposure of the sky. Um, so I had to play around with how the distance the guy was standing at you know, away from the house. Otherwise it was too bright, not bright enough. So I tried a few variations until, and a few times it was out of focus, as I'm sure some of you uh, are familiar with that feeling, pretty disappointing. And this one was just bang on, right towards the end. Great swirls of sky, perfect aurora coming up through. So this was the last, um, I think the last shot that I got to at this point. So, um, where do you go from here in the project again? So I've shot the Northern Lights. What's next? You know, what, you know, it was pretty amazing experience. Um, what can live up to that? Well, maybe, maybe Mars. So the net and I discovered these Mars simulations that go on analog Mars simulations, basically practicing, doing experiments, pretending, you know, they're on Mars in the most extreme, serious way possible. So the, this was, um, uh, this, this particular simulation, I've shot two of them, one in Utah and one in Oman. So this was in the southern Dofar desert of Oman. Uh, and it was organized by the Austrian um, Space Forum. And this is an amateur organization that are working towards, you know, some of them uh, engineers, some of them working in aerospace, but in their spare time, you know, they're that passionate about space. This is what they spend their time on. They practice, organize, and this was a pro proper professional uh, endeavor. So they built their own spacesuit, spacesuit simulator, which you're gonna see. So, and this is kind of an idea, well, you can see this spacesuit simulator, which is pretty impressive. Um, and the landscape there, you know, it was absolutely unbelievable. It was picked because of the similarities with Mars in terms of um, the, the rocks and stuff like that. So here we, and <clears throat> a bit more detail about the spacesuit to come. So they also um, had a huge inflatable kind of hydroponics um, experiment lab that was in the middle of this big compound. Uh, so this is it here on the left. And also uh, at the same time, I was shooting um, stuff to really kind of convey this feeling of you know going to outer space, really kind of reaching to try and do a bit more to create the feeling of outer space, you know, the feeling of wanting to go to Mars. So, yeah. And so the spacesuits are quite advanced. You know, this is, these are probably proper engineers that have looked into this. How can we create the feeling of being in a spacesuit on another planet? And um, here you can see some of the kind of additions that they, they use, these body braces to kind of simulate, um, you know, more gravity. I think there's, is there more gravity on Mars, so it's slower, you know, slower movements. Uh, 
Glass gravity or what is that? Glass, yeah, that's the one, right way around. So somehow they're kind of simulating the movements, you know, making it slower to move or faster to move. You know, so they've got braces on their arms, braces on their legs. Um, and so these suits are also to kind of get across the psychological thing of being in a spacesuit for two hours. You know, it takes four, it takes about two or three hours to get into the space that they call a doffing procedure. It's a bit similar to what they do on the ISS. And they have this huge checklist going through, you know, to get into these suits. You know, took forever. So they have these safety vehicles that follow around. They're pretty cool little, nifty little things. And these guys are the safeties which follow the, the suited guys around to make sure nothing kind of goes wrong. Or, you know, if they fall over, they're pretty screwed. So these guys have to go and pick them up, basically. And these things are pretty fast. They zip around the desert. You know, I wanted to go on one, but I, I, they didn't seem to be too happy about me, uh, me borrowing one for a while. So here we go, uh, a bigger kind of better view of the kind of hydro, the, this inflated uh, lab, you know. And it was pretty close to, you know, um, almost maybe better than the NASA stuff, you know. I, I think their simulation, I've seen they use the... Um, the, high, the suits that are used for disease quarantine, you know, so they go about in these, the, in Hawaii, I think it was the NASA simulation. So this is kind of a step above. But on the other hand, it's still kind of amateur. So some stuff is, you know, goes wrong. At one point, the janitor, generator went down and this whole thing just deflated. Uh, it was pretty interesting, and pretty amusing as well. And here you can see in the background up there, that's one of those things zipping off into the distance. And they, it was also an outreach program in the same way Scopex is. They were bringing school children from around the um, Oman. And there is moderate Islam. And so, you know, women have more opportunity than they, they do than other uh, Middle Eastern countries like Saudi Arabia, etc. So this girl was very interested in physics, you know, wanted to basically become an astronaut. So she was there being inspired. And so that's why I shot this portrait, you know, just great kind of uh, great character, really kind of inspiring. Um, and here we have on the other side, a little detail that kind of gets across. They're doing all their um, engineering work themselves, all their um, little electronic stuff. They're doing it. And here we have a portrait on the left, on, well, my right, your left. Um, and on the other side, they, they've got experiments, experiments from all over the world. So people had to apply, similar to Scopex, people applying to, you know, saying, oh, why we want a telescope and what we're going to do with it. These people had to say why they were going to do the experiment, what it was going to bring, and why, why should they go to Oman. And this one was a little rover, and which was taking soil samples, etc. Uh, so you get the idea here. And here's another shot of um, trying to kind of get really across that feeling of you know reaching for kind of outer space. And also, you guys probably know what one of these is. You know, it simulates G-force, spins round in lots of different directions. Good fun to have a go on one. They also, the, the analog astronauts, um, there was only five of them. They had to go through a lot of training to come to Oman and do this. And um, so only five, not everyone wanted, not everyone got to be in the spacesuit or be an astronaut. Just um, So they went about on these quad bikes, which obviously wouldn't work on Mars. And here's a better view, you know, this, the, the light pollution here, the orange glow is actually from um, oil refineries just over in the distance here. And it really kind of gave this otherworldly kind of Mars, you know, like Matt Damon's Martian film, everything is, you know, red, it's a red planet. So that kind of gave that feeling to this photograph. And you get a better idea of the whole compound, people sleeping in these containers all the way along here. 
and it, here we're getting towards the end of the well the last slide of the talk more kind of um, simulation shots so I'm uh, gonna kind of open it up to any kind of questions um, just a quick Q&A if anyone has any Have you stuck your camera freezing freezing Oh, well, good, good question. I mean, uh, so you have to bring lots of batteries, basically. Um, the main problem I found, you know, other than the batteries draining fast, you know, because you're using live view loads, so the batteries are, you know, going really fast. So you've got to have a lot of batteries. The main problem I had was moving location because you would get into a warm car and so your cameras would steam up inside. And this was very irritating because it would last for a good while and it would spoil any kind of shots that you wanted to take or anything. So you would just have to time out. I think there's some technique. You're supposed to put it inside a sealed bag before you get into the car to um, stop it from steaming up. But I didn't do that. Kind of lazy. So. so, yeah, any other questions? Most suitable time March and September for the Northern Lights. Yeah, I is think it so. Is the same for in for in Northern America, or would it be slightly different? No, I think it is the same time. It's to do with the space weather, uh, which Peter would have, you know, he's he's a serious expert on on this. Uh, I don't know if anyone attended his talk earlier. Um, he he would be able to tell you about, but that and why that is. Um, I think it is it to do less sun. No, I don't know. He he would know. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So that is the best time to go and see. I'm not sure about the Australis or whatever it's called in the south. And um, that'd obviously be opposite in the same way South Africa is. You know, uh, not opposite times from our spring and summertime, blah blah blah, winter. Um, winter and summertime so it would be the same for North America to go you know and also Northern Europe so Norway blah 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 anything any other places like that so yeah any other kind of questions why specifically Iceland and not Norway uh, well I'd been to Norway before uh, one um, one reason and the other was the, the landscape, you know, the, the reasons I was telling you about the, these sci-fi films being filmed there. I also had found out this, um, you know, this, uh, the Apollo training had been there. So it kind of really fit my project, you know, space but on Earth. <laughs> and also I, I'd find out, out about this guy who ran the museum, uh, the Apollo Museum, and was inviting all these astronauts over. So he was a key part of the story. Uh, it was actually in the Guardian, so I started off um, shooting just for me, and that was the idea. But then I pitched it around because Iceland is an extremely expensive place, <laughs> so I needed someone to get behind me to, you know, be able to go. And I was lucky; I pitched it to the Guardian, and their editor likes kind of space stories, and so they commissioned this story uh, for me to go. So it's pretty cool. But a key part of this commission was this guy that ran the museum. You know, he, he was a really great character. He's, he goes, he does his, uh, he, he has a replica Apollo spacesuit, which he gets into. And, uh, you know, I took pictures of that. I took him to different, you know, places in Iceland. Um, so that was a big part of why I chose this location. That, well, not this one, but Iceland, rather than uh, Norway. You know, and also it just seemed like an awesome place. <sighs> So if that answers your question. Yeah, so uh, if there aren't any questions, uh, I just want to thank um, Scopex for having me here, for you know offering me to come. It was an amazing opportunity. And so hopefully this is all going to be part of a book. Um, eventually, I haven't got a publisher, but I'm hoping to get one kind of this year. And... Um, I'm sh I was shooting more at Scopex today, you know, amateur astronomers, and I'm hoping to kind of pitch this to another magazine and get it published. So fingers crossed for that, um, which is part of the reason why I was late, you know, uh, shooting and talking on the same day. I don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so thank you to Larica, Chris, everyone at Scopex for having me here, and thank you for coming along, the interest in, in coming and listening to me kind of talk. <laughs> thank you very much. Right, that is the end of the Scopex lectures. Some of you may be cheering, others sighing, but whatever your feelings on the matter may be, they're irrelevant because there are no more recordings from Scopex to share. From now on, it's all me, and if he hasn't run off and started his own podcast in my absence, Clem Unger. The next few episodes will feature interviews with a series of local astronomers involved with projects that you've almost definitely heard of, and I'm really looking forward to recording them for you. I get a lot of satisfaction from chatting to these people, hearing their stories, and getting to know them a little bit and then sharing that experience with you. The only thing that's missing is hearing what you have to say, which is why I always ask you to leave reviews or comment on the show notes page. You can also mail me at podcast at urban-astronomer.com or tweet me at uastronomer or leave a note on the Urban Astronomer Facebook page. Meanwhile, if you want to help me grow the show and produce a more professional and reliable product... Well, the best way to do that is to actually help me literally grow the show. A bigger audience means more people that I have to be accountable to, and that means more pressure to perform. Now, don't tell my boss, but I actually do better under pressure, so if enough of you are able to gang up on me, you will be able to direct the future of the Urban Astronomer podcast in what I can only imagine would be a positive direction. Or you could just buy the right to give me orders by pledging your support on Patreon. It's easy enough. Uh, go to the urban-astronomer.com website and click the Patreon link on the right-hand side. Follow the prompts. A few dollars a month gets you access to my library of raw recordings and you get to see your name and lights, sort of. And while it's not really a lot to come out of your budget, it does add up and give me the funds that I need to start doing more ambitious projects. Anyway, to summarize, good stuff coming. Uh, give me money, subscribe and review. Until next episode then, cheerio and clear skies.